Welcome back to the Brave Marriage Podcast. You are listening to season two, and today I have two guests on the show who are dear to my heart, Steve and Twyla Lee. Today, Steve and Twyla serve couples through couples counseling, premarital counseling, and retreats, both virtually and in person through their ministry intentional relationships. Steve served as professor and chair of the psychology department at Huntington University for 14 years. Before braving the wilderness in Colorado as my first professor of marriage and family studies, along with Twyla at the Focus Leadership Institute. With a doctorate in counseling psychology, Steve has served as a visiting professor at Denver Theological Seminary and as a graduate fellow at Huntington Graduate Institute for Leadership and Counseling. Twyla is a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Colorado. She served as the director of social work education for 10 years at Taylor and six years at Huntington before partnering with Steve at the Focus Leadership Institute. Twyla has served as associate professor and lead faculty at Indiana Wesleyan's online social work program, and also as a graduate fellow at Huntington's Institute for Leadership and Counseling. And as I said today, they work together through their ministry at Intentional Relationships, which you all can find at intentionalrelationships.org. With 47 years of marriage under their belt, as of a couple of weeks ago, Plus, over 30 years of experience teaching, coaching, and counseling couples, you can imagine my excitement to have them on the show and to share their wealth of knowledge and wisdom with us. So, Stephen Twyla, welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Kenzie. I want to jump right in and have you guys tell us about the world in which you two married and raised your family, wherever you'd like to start. You know, let, let me start by giving a little bit of backdrop to that question, as well as maybe some other bigger ones. And that is, during the time that we grew up, and then when we were in college, and, and you know, our relationship started and eventually got married, um, all of the things like books on marriage, premarital counseling, marriage counseling, uh, resources to read for relationships, most of that was non-existent. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what's known today didn't even really exist back then. A lot of the premarital counseling movement got started more like in about the mid 70s um, and then has grown since then. Um, and so when we got married, uh, it was interesting because we did go to the pastor's house of Twyla's church for premarital counseling or premarital preparation. Mm -hmm. And when we got there, knocked on the door and he opened the door and his comment to us was, well, I know both of you are majoring in psychology in college. And so you know more about this than I do. So let's just talk about <laughs> ceremony. And that's what we did. We talked about the ceremony the next day, did not touch anything about relationships or marriage or whether we were ready for it or knew what we were getting into. So that, that was kind of the start. And so we had a lot to learn early on. And I think that understanding of how important the families you've come from are in how, you know, your relationship is going to work or not work. I think that was probably the, the biggest surprise to us after we were married. And mm. it could have easily been addressed as, as is done in premarital or marriage prep. Now that's a major topic to discuss. And it's so enlightening. So some of the things that were a little scary right after marriage could have mm -hmm. been, you know, could have been addressed and it would have been no big deal. We would have said, oh, yeah, this makes sense. This is why this is hard for us, you know, because 
I grew up in a family where you resolve conflict and he grew up in one where they didn't. So, you know, mm-hmm. this is not going to work real easily. We're going to have to figure this out. Yeah. But sure. a lot of us went into marriage very ignorant. Okay. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. ignorant. We were becoming more educated. You know, I had, I went to college. My parents never did. So I was becoming more educated formally, but the informal education about relationships was still being learned in your family of origin. And so what you brought to marriage was whatever you'd had there for the most mm-hmm. part. And mm-hmm. it's always a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought to think about whatever you experience in your family of origin is what you brought to the marriage, not knowing that there was a way to change that. Yeah, and, and in fact, we used to talk about the fact that, that the family in which you grow up, your family of origin really is your first laboratory for relationships. And it's not right. full education, but it's everyday education in terms of how do you do things? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you do with emotions? And how do you deal with conflict? And is encouragement part of what happens there? Or, you know, on and on and on and on, you know, all the different things relationally, and that's what becomes your norm. That's what you get used to. And mm-hmm. now you bring that to a relationship from, you know, with somebody who's grown up in a very different system. And mm-hmm. so you got to figure out how do we make those come together? How do we make them work? Yeah. And do you all think at the time that you all talked about that and worked on figuring that out because you were psychology majors, for example, or do you think that's something all couples had to figure out? Like all couples hit marriage and went, okay, we have to make this work. It doesn't occur to people, most couples, where their disagreements are coming from or why they're not on the same page. And, and it's just, and, and you're usually at a stage of life where you're busy with either education or career or something and your days are very full. And so there's not a lot of attention paid to it. You're just living life together. And you, you try to move forward. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that really helped us was early in our marriage, we were invited by a friend to get involved and trained in the marriage enrichment movement which Norm Wright out of California was starting. And so mm-hmm. we were trained. Um, and in doing that, we were exposed to this stuff, you know, for the sure. our premarital training, like two years after we were married, <laughs> when we started in this program that really uh, addressed all these things that are so important in a marriage relationship. Um, yeah. And I think when we started working on it much more intentionally. Yeah, I, th- I think God was... Uh sort of humorous with us because one of the things that we can't do is to teach things that we don't live. And mm-hmm. so as we got involved in that program or, or that movement and started getting opportunities to talk with people about relationships and marriage, it became a matter of, okay, we need to figure out what's going on with us and to do it well or to do it right um, if we're going to be able to share that or talk about that with other people. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was movement into that world that I think, in a sense, forced us to deal with or look at what is it that we need to work on? What do, what do we need to talk about? Sure. That makes so much sense. And it's reminding me of my own experience because I got married in grad school. So it's Twyla, mm-hmm. like you guys have both been saying, yeah. <laughs> you're learning it as you're living it. So yeah. yeah. And I don't- I don't know about you, Kenzie, one of the things we found out, and and of course, this is so long ago, but, you know, we had training and we had education in this area. Uh, The interesting thing for me is given the family that I grew up in, 
it's one thing to know something in your head. It's another to actually translate it emotionally and behaviorally into what it is that you're living. Because mm-hmm. uh, things that I know, and I, you know, it's kind of like Paul when he talks in the New Testament. The things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. And things that I want to do, I don't do those things. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, that's kind of described how I was when we were first got married. I knew yeah. things, but given what my experience had been, it took a lot of work for me to get to where I could actually change and put those in place. Mm-hmm. May I ask yeah. what that process was like? Like you're saying, it's, it's a big leap to get from mm-hmm. A to Z. What was that process like for you all? Starts with awareness mm-hmm. and awareness that what I'm doing isn't helping or isn't healthy or is not bringing us together. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's what feels normal given what I had known as a child. So awareness that I really need to change. And then the hard work of step-by-step trying to put those things into practice. I mean, I'll let Twyla tell the story about the first night we actually, we were in bed and talking about some, some things that had been going on and it was really hard. And I really opened up and, you know, vulnerability was there. And that wasn't something that was part of my past experience. It was a new thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and so when we were done discussing this, he just laid back on his pillow and he goes, oh, I'm exhausted. And I'm sitting there, sitting there. Oh, this is exciting. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm all geared up. I'm not sleepy at all because this is the best conversation we've had in a long time. And I learned so much. Here's the other thing that I probably had better skills in communication and healthy relationships for my family, mm-hmm. but I had to learn, I had to make, be a student of my husband and who he is, uh, his background, his personality and how my approach to him to forge out better ways of communicating and, and resolving things and getting on the same page, I had to learn because I had to do it differently than I was used to in my family, okay? He's a different person. He comes out of a different background, his personality and all that, so that some of the techniques I was using were actually pushing him away because it was something against, and I had to had to do different things. It helped me to, to be in grad school in social work because I was learning how to have empathy for all kinds of people, right? Ways of addressing things depending on where people were coming from. And I realized, well, that's true for us. I mean, it's true for every right. human relationship. And so we need to apply that here too. It's not just for others. I think that was a big learning curve for me is to adjust and modify and do things that will work in our relationship rather than just expecting him to respond the way my dad and mom had or my sisters because he wasn't them. It was a gradual process. Yeah, just one example when she mentioned specific techniques. Growing up, this didn't work in our family. And so the thing that she would do early on was try to make me talk about stuff. And trying to make me talk was sort of the energy that I needed to, in a sense, find ways to go make me. Uh, (laughs) No, it was like, you're not going, I'm not going to do it just because you're trying to force me to do it. And she was really good at learning how to better come at that in a way that I felt open to talk. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important for couples to hear. So I appreciate you all bringing that to light. Number one, I think 
most couples can relate to that scenario. You know, as you guys were talking about that, probably people in their heads are thinking, okay, glad I'm not the only one. (laughs) But then, you know, Tyla, when you were talking about just the ways that you learned to relate to Steve and how, even though you had more skills technically coming in, you still had that humility to realize, okay, but I'm married to a different person and we're growing at a different rate. Our relationship dynamic is something different. So thanks for that as well. Something I remember you all talking about when I was in your class was the importance of getting married, having built a relationship on friendship first. As a 20-year-old, that really stood out to me. And I'm wondering if that was something you all had learned you know, from culture, from your families or something at that time? Or is that something that you two hit on specifically because you found it to be so important for you and other relationships? Okay, we're going to be honest here. We just kind of became friends because we did so much over time. We didn't do it as a way to build towards something else. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Later. And we're very thankful for the friendship that was there to begin with. Uh, and I wish I could say that it was intentional that we built that first. But we're just, uh, you know, we're grateful it happened that way. Mm-hmm. But something that we did on purpose. And it wasn't something that was typical of most relationships back in the early 70s either. No matter of attraction, asking people out on a date, and then, you know, things going from there. Okay. Okay. Well, along those lines, you said there weren't many, you know, Christian marriage resources available, but what was the marriage advice of the day? We talked about this trying to decide if there was any. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that there's anything that stands out as marriage advice of the day. I mean, I, you know, just a little backdrop. I mean, the 50s had been one thing, and then the 60s turned everything on its head. Mm-hmm. And anyone who grew up during that time, if you have anybody listening that was growing up during the 60s, they'll recognize a couple of phrases. One of them was, do your own thing. And the other one was, if it feels good, do it. And so a lot of the emphasis on on being a certain way in the 50s got turned in the 60s to much more of an affective uh, realm of feelings and operating and functioning off of your feelings. And, And so for a lot of people, it was, if I feel like I wanna be with you and if I you know, we, we want to head down that road, that's a great thing as long as we feel that. And, and love kind of became defined more in terms of feelings rather than commitment. And, and so marriage advice wasn't really, I, I mean, we couldn't really think of anything that was, that stood out as people say, when you get married, remember this, a much more individual rather than communal. I mean, I guess it's so foreign to be my generation and younger who have access to so much information and so many resources. How are you two living out your Christian faith as a married couple? So getting involved in Christian marriage enrichment was extremely helpful because now we're in the world that as that was developing and things like Prepare and Rich were coming on the scene, you know, we were using a lot of things, not just for ourselves, but then to pass on to other people as well. That was really helpful. And the other thing that I don't think we realized it at the time, but we had both grown up uh, in Christian families and involved in church. 
when we got married, we sort of almost, I don't think it was accidental necessarily, but not so much intentional. Every church we were part of, we found ways to be involved in that church in a way that we did it as a couple. So like mm-hmm. we would lead the junior high group because nobody else wanted to deal with the junior high kids um, or, you know, a number of other things. We, we always were looking for ways that we could be involved in ministry or giving of ourselves to the church or to other people or other ministries uh, in a way that we did that together. Credit my parents with a good role model of a healthy relationship, even though they had even less resources than I did. I mean, they both had a seventh and eighth grade education, um, but especially my father, a devout believer, a godly man, and he just depended on the Holy Spirit in his life him and um you know that was really uh, a good example for me because when we got into difficulties my go-to would be to pray about it to just go and say I don't know what to do you know and it's so many times I just really felt the peace of God when I kind of gave up my plan and just into other ways of doing things and so my prayer life really was important in that time and helping me gain perspective Mm -hmm. So good modeling, listening to the Holy Spirit, surrendering to the Holy Spirit, getting involved in church together, and then eventually with a preparing rich and that movement coming along. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we can understate the importance of what we were doing career wise and professionally, and how that would spill over or we would intentionally work at things in our own marriage because of what we were doing there. Well, before we move into that, because I do want to talk to you guys, given your professional experience and expertise, but before we go there, I'm curious if there's anything from the day that you remember being particularly unhelpful, parenting advice, marriage advice, anything that stands out? I I think for me, it was being able to gain a different perspective on some of the religious legalism about what marriages ought to look like or even parenting and to really modify that. And again, I, I, I look at my family and I think they were pretty unique in that era of not being so legalistic, but it was all around me. Um, sure. and, and I really struggled with that and labeling or, you know, expectations based on gender as opposed to giftedness and personality and opportunity. So uh, I think those were some of the things that I had to, that, that really I need to, to resolve because they really rubbed me the wrong way. And, and I have come to realize that often legalism is a, a place where we get trapped instead of opening ourselves up to a, a, what really God has designed and what God's purpose for marriage and family is in a much broader sense than in just a phrase or one mm-hmm. verse in the Bible. But you need to take the whole story and, and, and make it an application to marriage and family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so as you were learning that in your own life, coming out of that legalism, seeing it modeled well, like you said, in your parents, but also figuring out what your all's marriage looked like, given the culture around you. How did that, you were talking about understanding the larger purpose of marriage and family and not just focusing in on one little thing. How did that expand your all's relationship? Yeah, that, it, it's a great question. I think it began to expand the way we looked at the purpose of who we were 
and what we were doing. I mean, you know, we obviously have, you know, the God first designing marriage and saying, you know, you know, not good to be alone. And so make a companion. And, you know, so that companionship and, and all the relational stuff in scripture about how should we talk to each other? And what do we do with conflict? And what about these emotions? There's all kinds of stuff woven through scripture uh, that, that helps us with that. And, you know, we often ask people, how many verses in scripture speak to marriage? And for most people, you go to Ephesians 5 and Genesis 2 and, you know, after that they, and for us, it's woven all the way through. Everything in scripture that has to do with the way you relate to someone in a loving and godly way can be applied in your marriage. Mm-hmm. And so the relational piece was important, but we also came to two other pieces that kind of expanded our view of who we were and what we were doing that also really come from scripture. And, the, and I think the research supports all of this as well. You know, the relational is one piece, but it's also transformational. You know, iron sharpening iron. How do we help each other become the best that we can be? How do we help each other discover and, and be what it is that God has called each of us to be and, you know, to grow and become all that he wants? Mm-hmm. And so challenging each other as well as supporting and doing it in ways that can be accepted and heard and motivational or inspirational to do that, I think became real important. And then, so you've got relational transformational. And the third piece for us that we think comes out of scripture as well is that it's not just about us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when we had kids, we had, we had a mission with them to raise them in a certain way. But, you know, our boys are married and on their own now, but I think we still look for ways for our marriage to not just be limited to the two of us, but how do we, as a couple, now make a difference in the world for Christ and his kingdom? And so yeah. having, having some kind of mission as a couple to, you know, where, where can we do that? Where can we have impact? What can we do? Who can we mentor? I, whatever it might be to have that purpose. It's not just about having this wonderful love between us where we sit and look in each other's eyes all day long. Uh, (laughs) We don't, we do that occasionally now, but not, not (laughs) so yeah. So what, what are we doing that makes a difference for other people as well? So that to us, I mean, you, you look at the new Testament, Priscilla and Aquila mentioned seven times they're never mentioned separately. And it always talks about how they helped Paul or the church that meets in their house. And so having that kind of perspective of where can we do something that makes a difference and mm-hmm. praying about that and looking for those opportunities, we think is also important for that bigger picture of what our marriage is. I will take okay. that conversation to a much more superficial level by saying, when you said, how did it expand our marriage? It was so freeing when I realized that Steve loves to clean house and he does it better than me and it's <laughs> the wife's job. So he can do that and I can go outside and mow the lawn. We had a neighbor stop one time and ask Steve why he made me mow the lawn. Stop. <laughs> I said, this farm girl, I'd have to wrestle that <laughs> out of her hands in order to, to do So that. being able to, you know, take care of our responsibilities in ways that fit with who we are and what we like to do, or, you know, there's some jobs in either one of us, but then we figure out, but that was just so freeing to be able to, as a couple, 
figure that out for ourselves. And these days, I often remind couples when we're doing premarital or marriage counseling is that there's no other couple on earth like the two of you. There's a uniqueness there and you need to mm-hmm. celebrate that and live it out because, you know, someone else could tell you, oh, it should, you should do it this way. Well, they're not you. You know, you really have to figure out God brought us together as a unit. Okay, now mm-hmm. as a unit, how do we function best? Yep. Given who he made us individually, and now brought us together. So that was that was a very freeing time in our marriage to figure out that we can figure out our own way that works best for us, for our relationship and in raising our, our sons. So I do have a follow-up question that I'm gonna spring on you guys. Oh. Um, when you, sorry, <laughs> when you're talking about raising your boys, you know, I know I have a lot of moms who are listening in and I'm curious when your boys were young, Steve, you had said something earlier about, you know, our boys are grown and gone. They have their own families now, and we still have us and all these things that we are investing in now as a couple. Can you all speak to kind of taking a long-term perspective on what that looks like, or at least what it looked like for you guys in the early years of having young kids and how you split those roles versus how you thought about it long-term, like this isn't going to be our lives forever. Yeah. Well, we pulled our hair out like many parents do <laughs> now, trying to figure out how do you manage everything, you know, and, and I know that there are perspectives on parenting that are different now than when we had boys, you know, back in the 80s and stuff. But um, I, I think there are some principles that still would hold true. We Let me start by saying that Um, We have often told our boys and we talk with other people who are our age and say, we thank God that we didn't have to raise our boys in this age of technology Mm. like so many have to deal with now. Uh, The whole thing with devices and cell phones and social media and internet. And I mean, I, I just really, my heart goes out to parents who have to fight those battles all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, whether it be that or when our boys are growing up, there is a, this notion of what boundaries do we need to set and how do we set them in a way that we can still communicate love to our kids and accept them for who they are while at the same time saying that not everything is okay and putting those boundaries in place. And, you know, that's always a, that's always a tough road for parents. And we, we had to navigate that, you know, as our, as our boys were growing up. And, you know, I think one of the things that we always tried to keep in mind, I'm not sure we always did, was, and the way that somebody put it to, to us once, I had a prof once who said, your job as a parent is to work your way out of a job. Mm -hmm. Um, The idea that, they won't always be yours. God has given them and trusted them to you for this time. And it's up to you to help them get to where they can live life on their own, following God and, and investing in ways that, that are healthy or godly. Yeah. And how do you help them to learn to make good choices? Because choices are going to be part of what life is about, not only when they're kids, but when they're adults. Mm-hmm. And so teaching about the fact that choices have consequences and you have to consider what could this lead to. And, you know, that, that, that's hard because you've got to continually be renegotiating or navigating that in different ways as they get to different stages of childhood. 
you can't do that with a five-year-old in the same way you do it with a 14-year-old. So mm -hmm. it, it's tough. You've got to constantly be looking at what's the best way to do that. I think too that we a very, in fact, my boys will say this now that one of my favorite words with yeah. them was be proactive. Yep. And so I would try to be proactive with them too. I, and and, and t before they left on the bus or whatever to have some time of affirmation and re remind them that when they got home from school, we'd be asking them what went well today. What you were know, the because, three best things today? You know, Because yeah. there's always, the, the problems will always come forward, but to be able to affirm your kids and, and guide them and help them in positive ways to offset places in, that are negative and they're going to encounter those. You don't want to, sh you don't want to shield them from it. You have to prepare them for it because the hardest thing for me as a parent was the sadness of my children experiencing things like bullying or being made fun of or being excluded. And, and, you know, this is part of life and it's hard. It's really hard as parents to let kids experience things, but be there to support them and help them through those times instead of going to peers all the time peers are become real important but they don't have very much wisdom so it's really <laughs> we also try to make our home very welcoming to their friends that it would be a place they'd want to hang out we had space in the house where they could go with their friends and um, you know it, i think that that space or that your home is a welcome being place for their friends is a, a very important part of parenting as well yeah i was going to mention that too that one of the practical ways to do it is, how do you make your home a place where your kids are going to wanna to bring their friends? And especially in adolescence. I mean, we got things like a hot tub and a pool table and a movie room and stuff, just so that they would wanna come. And we got to know their friends and we didn't have to be concerned about who they were with or what they were off doing. And, you know, making it a safe place for them to come. I mean, that, that was a great thing for us to do. I made them good food. And that you was, did make yeah. good food. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like you all, you were proactive, Twyla. You were intentional about working yourself out of a job, Steve. And so then when it came time for them to leave the nest, what was that like for you guys in your marriage in particular? It was great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Honestly, yeah. We'd, been, we'd been getting ready for it for a long time. And to tell the truth, both of our boys ended up, they looked at a variety of places, but they both ended up going to the university where I was teaching. What we did was to tell them that, you know, we weren't going to be in their lives. And we told them we didn't even want them to come home until at least Thanksgiving. You know, we just mm -hmm. didn't want much of anything to do with them. Be there, be away at college. You know, we're not going to be there to kind of be in your business. And and I think that was important. And eventually after their freshman year, then they bring friends to our house, but they had made that, that split or that separation in sure. a way how they could be their own person and not just following what we say. And so it was nice to still have them around, even though we didn't intentionally hang out with them or spend time with them much to begin with. And, and once they truly were gone, you know, our marriage, we had done enough and taught enough about it and worked enough with it and been speaking and worked enough on our own stuff that honestly, empty nest, it was great. I mean, we yeah. even now, we still really enjoy that. 
even though life has moved on and we get the chance to see them, but they're not here anymore. Go ahead, Twyla. It, it's, it, I don't want it to make it sound like it was a totally easy road. I think right. at every juncture, you know, like when your kids reach adolescence and then when they graduate high school and then at every one of those, there are mixed feelings. There's a sadness, I think, that that stage of their life is over, but there's an anticipation of what could be in the next one. And I think those are healthy, mixed emotions to have, yep. that you yeah. don't you have one or the others people go to the extreme one way or the other rather than saying I can have both of these at the same time and that that is makes sense it's good you know anytime you end something there is a sense of loss and well you grieve that and but you also have an anticipation of the future and those things together I think are really important to hold on to I know I mean, just a lot of young moms, whether it's clients or friends or family, you know, that is a, that is a struggle of that feeling like that either or. And so holding those intention, like there's going to, it's going to be happy and it's going to be sad. And these are both good things, you know? So I appreciate you bringing that. And, and I think it's encouraging for listeners to hear, you know, because what I hear from you guys as well is a lot of intentionality that then paid off mm-hmm. by the time the kids left the house and, you know, you weren't sitting there looking at each other in a way you didn't want to be, (laughs) but rather you're enjoying each other at that point. You're right. It was intentional. We always tried to do that. Not always successfully, but, but I just want to echo what Twyla said. I mean, it is very much a matter of losses and gains and, you know, you, you move on and you recognize that that's what life is. You know, we have a son who just moved to a different state. So we've been going through that in the last few weeks. And yet, as hard as that is, we also believe that God led them and that it's a right thing. And we're looking at the potentials and possibilities for what he can do with them in that move, even though it's hard for us to see them go so far away. But yeah, so both that sense of loss and sadness and grief combined with anticipation, I think we, we try to grab onto that and remember that in those mm-hmm. times. That's good. I want to transition into talking about your all's professional expertise and knowledge. So we've talked a lot about your family experience, which has been super helpful. I know that'll be helpful to listeners. I also want my listeners to glean from your all's wisdom and experience and knowledge. So I had said on the podcast a few weeks ago, that when I was in your all's class, as an exercise, you all had us stand in front of these different posters with the different decades and, and seeing in front of which one we thought we would most like to live in and do marriage and family life in is how I remember it. And I picked the 1950s and then I got an education (laughs) (laughs) on (laughs) things not being quite how they appear or how you look back on them nostalgically. So I was wondering if you guys could speak to why the 1950s weren't necessarily ideal for couples and families, maybe what good was there, but also how far we still had to grow. Um, The 1950s were an interesting decade. And I, I don't know if you remember from class, I think we used it then. I've certainly used it in other places. I think one of the interesting ways to track marriage and family is to see what the television shows were that came along in each decade. You know, in the 1950s, you had 
Leave it to Beaver and Ozzie and Harriet and all of these wonderful families who, and, and kind of the prevailing attitude of that time. And part of it came out of, after World War II, when the men came back, there were a lot of marriages that happened real quick and a lot of divorces that happened quickly. And so the 50s came along and said, we are not gonna do that. And so commitments were high and appearance was high. How do you look to the outside world? You know, so there was that shift, but, but it really was a time of conformity. Your family should look like this and your family should do this. And it should always look like it's got everything together. So when you go to church, and, and some, some of this is still around, but uh, when you go to church, make sure you look like the wonderful, godly Christian family, even if things within the privacy of the four walls of your home are not always that great. Mm-hmm. And so reputation and appearance and conformity and obedience, those were really quite common. And there were some good things about that. Um, I still remember, and I had friends who, when you would leave home, rather than say, have a good time or whatever, it was, now remember, you're a Johnson. And it was like, Mm. you're kind of the family standard bearer when you go out. And so represent us well. And so there was this kind of uh, underlying current of behaving and doing things the right way. And of course, the 60s came along and turned all of that upside down. But that's what the 50s were were more like. And that doesn't mean that there wasn't love in the families or good dynamics. There there was, but there was a real emphasis on on appearing right or appearing good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And given, given my personality, my upbringing, you know, that appearance appealed to me, especially as a teenager and 20 year old. And Twyla, you talked about some legalism growing up, so I can relate to those things. But then in learning more and understanding, oh, you know, appearances aren't always what we should be striving for, (laughs) or, you know, doing things the good and right way that are just for appearance sake or behavior sake. So I guess, can you all talk to underneath all of that? what was there for families that weren't being displayed in the TV shows, for example? Well, I think they, they might've shown up in there a little bit. And, and one of the things I wanted to add, and in fact, people can go online and sort of like values for women in the 1950s, let them look at that. There were a lot of really damaging kinds of messages, particularly for women with regard to marriage in the 50s. The idea that you needed to look a certain way. And so you see on Leave it to Beaver, as the wife is, you know, in heels and pearls and a dress doing all of the house cleaning. Look a certain way, be a certain way. Don't upset your husband. If he's having a rough time or things are not going well, you need to look and see how you've helped to make that, you know, create that. Um, There were a lot of really negative kinds of stereotypes and messages for wives in the 1950s, particularly, more so than for men. For the men, it was more career stuff in terms of how they needed to be at work. So so that was some of the underlying stuff. And you didn't necessarily see that in the TV shows, but, but it really was more of a kind of wife being the source of all things bad or good within the home. You guys have been 
you know, in the field almost as long as you've been married. So you've seen the evolution of marriage resources and of healthy teachings in the church and maybe a move away from some of these sexist teachings back in the 50s, for example. Can can you guys speak to, I don't know if you could give a timeline or kind of the transition of teachings over the years about healthy relationships? You know, I think there were a number of things that came about as a result of what was going on in society. When you had the sexual revolution of the 60s and early 70s, and now you had people who were living together or getting in marriages and divorces became very quick. And so you've got a lot of the next generation that was having to live with the fallout of that, parents breaking up. Um, there were a number of resources that came out about, you know, how to, how to communicate. A lot of the early stuff was on communication and conflict to try to save some of that. There was a movement uh, by a man named David McManus who wrote a book called Marriage Savers. And Marriage Savers was not so much about an individual marriage as getting into communities and how do we as the church make a difference and impact our entire community in order to reduce the divorce rate. Uh, mm -hmm. David and Vera Mace as well, uh, when they created ACME, the Association of Couples for Marriage Enrichment, same mm -hmm. kind of perspective. So I think there was a lot of reaction to how do we stave off the bad stuff rather than a real focus on enrichment and how do we promote and create good stuff. It was more corrective rather than, than, than preventive or growth oriented. Uh, yeah. But that certainly came along kind of starting the 80s and into the 90s. And, you know, a number of the people that you know and, and others that we know, you know, that people might recognize started writing books and coming out with video series and things that would help to promote uh, positive perspectives on marriage. And, and so that has really mushroomed. I mean, now you've got boatloads of books and video series that address all of that. Our perspective is that those resources are really helpful. I'm glad that those books and video series are out there. And in our opinion, some of them are much better than other ones are. You know, it's not like, oh, good, a Christian thing on marriage doesn't necessarily make it good. But there are some really good ones out there. But, um, after, you know, the years that we've done all of this, and even when we travel and speak, one of the things we want people to know is that reading something or hearing something oftentimes doesn't forge tremendous change. Um, one of the things that we think is really helpful is, and, and there's been more of a movement in the last decade or so toward this, is the movement toward marriage mentoring. Can you find somebody in your life who's a little bit farther down the road than where you are and who's been through things that you can bounce ideas off of and interact with and, and ask them for input about and process things with? Our, our experience is that when you can get that, as good as the books and videos and those kind of things are, and, and they are, I think the, the mentoring or finding someone to really engage with, um, even people who could, you know, make use of brave marriage and interact with you, that kind of interaction, I think, often forges a, a more lasting or significant change 
than reading a book about something. I mean, we've met people who have read 50 books on marriage and they really aren't any farther along now than before they started reading. Mm. Read them, they think, oh, this is really good stuff. It doesn't mean they're necessarily going to put it into practice. Mm -hmm. It it can be good. We don't want to, you know, paint a negative picture of that, but interact with somebody that can really invest in your life uh, or your marriage, I think we've seen be much more productive. Yeah. Accountability too, because you can have great desires and goals, but if you don't have the commitment to it or have the path to achieve that, um, and somebody in, in some ways asking you about it, you know, you think about addictions and people who have addictions counselors who hold them accountable, you know, and, and they have to report um, their progress and it keeps them going and moving. And it's, it's been very successful. And I think that's where good counseling comes in too with couples that if you have someone you can trust that can help you implement it in a very effective and efficient way and, and can applaud you, you know, you need affirmation. You need to say, yeah, we can do this. And this, this makes it better. Um, yeah. it, really is an encouragement. It's very motivating to have something that you do and change that makes the relationship better. That is fuel to keep going because that gives you motivation that change can be good. It can be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important too. When you guys were talking about in marriage and decades past, things were much more communal. And today there, you know, after the sixties and seventies, there's so much individual focus And so I think that piece you're bringing and you're saying research is showing this as well. It makes, it makes a lot of sense that having a community orientation, even if it's just a mentor couple in today's world, where we're so private, you know, um, could be really supportive to a marriage where there's so much placed on a relationship these days and so many expectations we place, you know, on a couple. So to have, have a support system is really beneficial. What are some things that you think, I mean, you guys have worked with thousands of couples. That's fair to say, right? Thousands of couples. Fair to say. Fairy, but yeah. <laughs> what are the things maybe in the past 10 years or so that you guys see maybe younger generations taking for granted or some of the things they're struggling with because of the cultural landscape? Good question. I think, I don't know if this was your class or not, but I think oh, back yeah. to one of our first classes at the Leadership Institute and we, you know, we were teaching about marriage and family and we asked the class how many people really hoped that someday they would have a marriage similar to what their parents had. And there were 44 students in that class and four raised their hands and wow, that, that kind of shocked us. Um, and so to dig into, okay, now what are the reasons for that? And I think that there can be several reasons. One might be that there are expectations that marriage should be harmonious and wonderful most of the time and their parents weren't. So, you know, it, it, or it could be that the way they saw their parents relating to each other just is not the kind of relationship that they thought would be helpful in their lives. And Mm -hmm. so I think one of the things that we've seen is the younger generation becomes disillusioned with marriage, partly because a lot of marriages fail. Okay. And, and it, it's, it, it really undermines trust when kids in a family 
have their parents divorce or have their parents constantly yelling at each other. That really uh, negates anything that any desire they would have to be in that kind of relationship. Why would you? So I think that really has eroded a lot of that. And, and many don't even know what should I expect in a marriage? It, it's, you know, you look at the films and, you know, it, it's happily ever after kind of stuff or none of that is really very truthful. So you're, you're functioning off of a lot of misguided information and relationships that you see. So helping young people understand what it takes to have a healthy relationship is really a critical piece of education these days, I think. And I think that even some elementary schools are starting to do that with all this bullying and stuff. We're actually introducing things, I think, that have to do with how do you relate to somebody in a healthy way and in an affirming way, in a way that shows that you care. We don't know. Um, It's not that we're deliberately trying to do away with something we don't know uh, what we could do or how to do it. Let me add to that because, you know, you look at the research on the younger generations now, the one that's just coming up, and then you've got Gen X and Gen Z. And, you know, most of the surveys or, or the data that's out there is that the majority still plan to get married someday, but not necessarily. I mean, it, it's become more of a, yeah, that would be nice, but they don't see it as being important uh, mm-hmm. or as important as, and I, I, this is gonna sound bad, I don't mean it this way, self-centered or things that affect them personally. Like I've gotta take care of my career and my professional track and where I'm going and the travel I wanna do. And, and so it's become more about, I wanna take care of things that are important to me. And if I get married to somebody, you know, I hope we can do that together because accomplishing all that stuff for myself is really important. And so you have a rise in cohabitation, you know, a lot of people living together to supposedly test things out, even though we know from the data that it actually makes matters worse, not better. Or they'll kind of see themselves as married but they don't necessarily want the church or the government sanctioning that because if it doesn't work, then it's a mess trying to get out of it. So there's a lot of dynamics happening right now that are are making marriage still something that they think they want someday, but not necessarily a priority for a given point in time. Uh, We'll see if happens, you know, as they think. And I think one of the things that contributes to that, and I'm going to maybe sound old here, but it's okay. I think it's biblical. I think the one thing, not the one thing, but one thing that is biblical about marriage that probably doesn't resonate very well with the culture today is that marriage involves sacrifice. It involves self-denial. It involves having to give to the other without necessarily getting in return all the time. I mean, there are a lot of those kind of things that don't necessarily resonate well with the current cultural tone. And some of what they want it to look like is not the reality of how God designed it or what scripture says is gonna be necessary for it to grow. But I will tell you that even though 
We've had tough times. After 47 years and working with tons of couples and having professional um, advancement, as we both have had, the one thing we would never trade is the 47 years. You know, the other stuff, it, it was good. I'm glad we had it. Um, glad for whatever impact it might have had. But uh, the most valuable thing to me in my life looking back over it, is the shared story of those 47 years that we've had together. But it's mm -hmm. required a lot of things that don't fit very well with cultural values now. Can you all give an example of a, of a practical way you've navigated that in your own marriage, where one of you had to sacrifice? How, how many dozens <laughs> do you want? <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, I can think of so many. One of the ones was for Twyla, and I know when I was in my doctoral program, and I was also working half-time, three-quarter time, um, as I was doing doctoral studies, I mean, that didn't leave a whole lot of time for family. And, and I know she would often say in that process or when it got done that during that time, she almost felt like a single parent. That, you know, she made a lot of sacrifice for that to be possible for me. And I, I'm glad I did it. And we're glad we did it. But we were also glad when that sacrifice was over. And that we could now do it, uh, raise our boys much more together and mutually. So that's one example. Um, there have been a lot of times of sacrifice. You know, there have been, when, when I first graduated from college, I actually had hopes and plans of going to a particular school for a particular program, which didn't happen because it made more sense given student loan situations and all of that for Twyla to start grad school first. And so the first two years we were married, she was in grad school and getting that degree, which she had wanted during a time when I wish that I was in school. And so, you know, we can just go on and on sacrifices. You make decisions that say for the sake of who we are and where we're going and what we want to be and how we want to do that. Um, mm -hmm. There are times that you each give up things for mm -hmm. the sake of the other. What I hear you saying there is, you were operating under this relational reality that I'm not sure all couples have today, even married couples, if that makes sense. So when you talk about the, the individualism, that's even there philosophically in marriages, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, how do we, it's this gridlock because it's like, we're wrestling out which one of us is getting our needs met, but you're saying we we thought about our marriage as a relational reality, not a two individual reality. And so the decisions we made were based on that, not out of in this moment, in the short term, like we could see beyond that and make those sacrifices for the good of the relationship, not for the good of how we felt in the moment. Is that accurate? That's accurate. And it doesn't mean we lost who we each were as individuals, but very seldom do we talk about things like I or me or you? We, we talk about we, you know, mm -hmm. how is this going to affect both of us? And we'll sacrifice for the sake of what the other one may want or need at a given time. But ultimately, it's we're going to do things in a way that doesn't drive us apart. So we think in terms of we. Mm -hmm. Twyla, I kind of want to hear from you on this question. Can you say a little bit more about in those times, so Steve had just mentioned, it's not like we gave ourselves up in those seasons, right? Like we were sacrificing, but at the same time, we didn't lose ourselves in each other. 
Can you speak to that more? Well, I think that um, there's a balance with everything. And so during that time when he was in his doctoral program, and I had done my master's already, so I knew the intensity of being in a area of study. And the great thing for me was when I was in grad school, I didn't, well, we had a job on the side where we cleaned offices together, but I didn't have another job. And he had a job and was doing his doctorate. And, and we had two young children, but I also was teaching a class. And so there was still a part of what I had trained for professionally that I was using. And mm-hmm. we were part of a community that nurtured our family. And we were engaged with that. And we would we, we stayed very involved together as a family in our church activities, okay? That Steve wasn't taken out of that, um, mm-hmm. with his obligations there. And I also really wanted to make it as easy as possible for him to succeed and finish. You know, when, you know, when somebody's in a doctoral program, it can go on for years. And I really did want him to finish pretty quickly. And he did. <laughs> so yeah. that it would be over, you know? Yes, yeah. yeah a lot of things that were part of that time that kept me fueled as well you know it's not like I gave up everything we readjusted how we spent our time and what my expectations were during that time in ways that would make sense I wasn't depleted I wasn't deprived of sharing myself um, with my sons with the community with uh, the school where, where I was teaching so there were those things that really uh, kept me going and encouraged and yeah yeah and I, I just want to add we were in Indiana and while I was teaching for 24 years at Huntington Twilo was director of three different social work programs um, at different schools and well connected well established and well regarded um, mm-hmm. each of those and I think we found ways and I, I would always, I always tried to encourage her to do that and, you know, to become, make use of the skills and the abilities that she had. It's kind of goes back to that piece or that principle that we have for marriage of transformation. How do you help each other become the best that you can be and make use of the gifts and abilities that God's given to you? I think we've both tried to do that in ways for each other. And mm-hmm. for each of us, it's required sacrifice at times, but it was for the greater good of helping both of us be all that God wanted us to be. That's really helpful. Thanks for going into that on a, on a practical level. Cause I mean, you're right that, you know, our generation doesn't, that's a harder for us to grasp. So mm-hmm. Having some guidance from a mentor couple like you guys is helpful. So you guys have been in the field of counseling and social work for over 30 years, like we've said, and, you know, there can sometimes be even still, I mean, in the area where I am hesitation around the integration of theology and psychology. And so I'm wondering from your all's perspective as Christians and as counselors, what are the benefits of drawing from scripture and from the social sciences? That's a, I, I like that question because the last class my seniors, psychology majors and counseling majors would ever have to take was one on the integration of faith and learning. And mm-hmm. so it was, why do we bother with one versus the other? Because there are a lot of programs that focus only on 
the research and the psychology and the social science background and what do you bring to helping people. There, there are certainly people or churches or others out there who say that the only thing you need is the Bible. And so, you know, bring those. And, and I've never been in either one of those camps because I think that anything that is true is God's truth. And so if there are things that we can learn from social science and that become confirmed and we say that we know this to be the case, it's not going to contradict what we find in scripture. And mm-hmm. I've found that more and more over the years, relationally and what makes for healthy relationships. And you look at emotional intelligence, lots and lots of stuff that's out there. Truth will always mesh, whether it's from scripture or social science. The nice thing from social science is for those people that we talk with who don't really I'll put it this way. They really don't care what the Bible says. There is social science data that I know scripture would back up, but they'll listen to the social science data or, you know, things that we can bring from that professional side, that trained side. And so it's important to help them to see what's true. So for me, bringing those things together is a challenge because there are some things in the social sciences that I think are not true because of what scripture says, but there's an awful lot that is true. And so how do you find and bring together truth coming from both of those directions? And by the way, for me, there have also been times when social science informs scripture because the way in which scripture is being interpreted or applied is I, I think incorrect and the science shows that. And yet people hang on to these ideas that, well, it says this, and so that's what it means. Well, yeah, maybe not. You know, there are some other ways of looking at that. Well, I never had a, a problem with it, although I got pushback from either side. Uh, you know, sometimes from the religious community, I'd get pushback because I was a social worker, right? And then mm-hmm. I back from the social work community sometimes because I had a devout faith, but it's really interesting. My profession was founded. The founders of social work were devout believers who took Mm. local principles and wanted to extend them to those who didn't have a voice and those who were being oppressed. And, you know, that the whole, if we look at the social work code of ethics, I mean, almost every principle you can tie with scripture. So for me, the foundation and the the living out of it, um, you know, and again, that it's been interpreted in different ways. I suppose as a profession, social work is often seen as quite liberal. And it's partly because the focus is on people who are oppressed and don't have a voice. And that that's very different from what uh, the normal Caucasian middle-class and upper-class community would even know about. So mm-hmm. there are differences there, but I've never had a problem with my profession and my faith fitting together. For me, that's always made a lot of sense that they fit together and there isn't a lot of tension there for me. The tension comes more from externals who would want to uh, challenge that and say on one side, oh, you're a bigot on the other side, oh, you've lost your faith. When in reality, sure. only strengthened my faith to have had this profession all my life. And that's been my experience as well, but I appreciate hearing your all's take on it. And I'm curious, as Christians who are also very informed when it comes to what constitutes healthy relationships, where do you guys think we need to be looking for strong, solid, healthy relationship advice? Well, I think brave marriage would be a good place to start. (laughs) 
Thanks for that plug. <laughs> we know of people who have what we think is a balanced and healthy perspective on what marriage should be about and what God's design and intention for it is. And, you know, I, I think back to when you were in class too, Kenzie, I think we probably did it with yours, but we did with many classes was to ask students about, you know, how, because they, they would be solid believers. I mean, their Christian faith was important to them. We say, okay, so does it give direction to everything that you're doing in life? Or have you been sort of tainted or influenced by culture in ways that may or may not fit with that faith? And we often use things like dating ideas and practices and, you know, how does that fit? I think to look for people who have wrestled with what does it mean to bring faith and scripture and data together, science together, to have a healthy, well-balanced perspective on things. Now, having said that, I think your question's hard because, I mean, there are hundreds upon thousands of books out there and video series and other things. So it's like, so where do we start? Sometimes I think you have to start with asking people whose opinion you would trust. I mean, if you're just a, a person who doesn't have any background or training in it, but you want to read something or watch something or listen to something that, that you hope will be helpful for your marriage, I mean, honestly, it, it would only be by the grace of God that you land on something that is worthwhile and good. There's stuff out there that's really not all that helpful. And so it's, it's really hard to kind of pinpoint to somebody, here's where to start. Uh, to right. me, the best place to start is with somebody who you would respect and honor and appreciate um, or respect their opinion. Mm -hmm. I also feel that different authors and their presentations appeal to different people Mm -hmm. depending on their station in life, you know, and so I would be probably more open to saying, you know, it really depends on what you like as far as type of writing yeah. or listening to people, what captures your attention that might really make a difference for you. And so in that regard, the variety is good mm -hmm. because there's lots of different people that will respond to different people in various ways. And we trust that they'll find the part the kind that is helpful to them. I really appreciate that perspective of different approaches strike different people differently. And, and really it's about what's, what's going to create that heart change. Where are you going to resonate with that's going to lead to the behavior change? Like we had talked about earlier, I am wondering, are there any guidelines that you're like, Oh, these things might be some red flags. I just think that the the ones that are recipes where one yeah. seems to be that one model or one perspective is supposed to fit for all people. I, that's kind of a red flag for me or yeah. something that's too prescriptive, gender specific, that just tries to label or pigeonhole people. That would be the biggest red flag for me that the less prescriptive something is within the bounds of truth and helpfulness. I, I just think that where there's just like, this is the way to do it. Here's step one, two, three, kind of. Five easy uh, steps. Sure. Yeah. Easy. Red flags to me. Like, yeah. okay, it's not <laughs> That's you know, such a good point. That is true. I mean, we've always been sort of uh, resistant to recipes where, you know, people say, put this together with this and mix it and everything's going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. People are more complex than that. And. So yeah, the recipe thing, yeah, that's a that's a good one. Last question for you guys. 
after 46 years of marriage, oops, 47 as of a couple of weeks ago, what wisdom from Mural's perspective do we need as Christian couples to hold on to as we do life and relationships in today's world, despite changes in the culture and the church? I think that it's digging into 1 Corinthians 13 that describes love, what love really is, rather than reading that superficially to read that with depth. That really is a picture of who God is and what he expects of us if we're going to have loving relationships. And I think that that study should not get old. That should be something you do frequently uh, because I think there is just so rich and there are so many points in that that you will see if you dig into it that research has affirmed is important in relationships you know it mm-hmm. is really there so that mm-hmm. is just such a such a rich rich scripture that is um maybe we just do it superficially but we really need to do that in depth frequently yeah and especially for christian couples and i don't know it's going to feel like the negative side but um we've talked with people you know, early on, I think it's easier to, to kind of grab onto it. And we see it in culture and generations now. But um, you talk to people who are older, I guess I would put it this way. Ultimately, in the end, self-centeredness feels real hollow. I mean, you know, you get to a point where you say, I've done everything I want to do, and but I don't have that much to show for it. And who are the people in my life now that really matter and are close to me? Do I have a spouse that is or whatever? And and for those who, who chase after things that are all centered on self, ultimately they're going to be dissatisfied with what that feels like. By the grace of God, work at it, and, in, and ultimately it's worth it. Thank you guys so much for your time. I mean, you've been so generous, and not only in this podcast episode, but with years and years of counseling couples. So thank you so much for your investment in others. I didn't think I would get teary, but including my own marriage. Well, thank you, Kenzie. I think we've told you and we've talked about it too. We're just thrilled and excited for the path that God's led you on and all of the training you've gotten and putting that together with faith and the impact that you're making for people. You know, you're, you're coming up behind us and as are a number of others. And we're just really thankful for the work that you're doing and who you are and for the chance we got to spend some time with you and Evan before you guys got married. So that was great. Me too. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for modeling all this so well for us. You're welcome. Love is not a Love is not a bond Love is just as fragile as it is